Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. this time of year is because the Christmas season, so you have Advent, the Advent season and then the Christmas season. The reason why, one of the reasons why I love it so much, first of all, is because it uh, points us to Christ and the salvation that was brought to us through him. But the second thing is this, is that everything we do during the Advent and Christmas season confronts our heresy. Every bit of it. In all of our hymns, in all of our scripture readings, it is about the Lord's work prospering. Having good success. As a matter of fact, find me anything in scripture that says otherwise that is given as a as instruction doctrinally or as a positive example to follow show me one place of being down and out and well it's just the way it is and there's nothing we can do about it. no it's not what is said it is a conquering christ it is the birth of he who is to be king. And Peter said at the resurrection of Christ in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, said that God had raised up Jesus to take the throne of David and had made him both Lord and Christ. Whew, that is glorious. That is wonderful. I love this time of year. It confronts all of our heresies our deconstruction, because we start singing things and we're like, are we allowed to sing that? And the reason why is because we are so deconstructed today, and so I think it is is great, um, because it pushes us back to ancient Christianity. And that's what we need. We don't need any more of this innovative stuff. And listen, every, there's a fight going on in the world today, and I don't know, you know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, but I do know one thing, that the Lord is building his church. Listen, he has worked throughout all of history, and he is working today. And we have seen times of revival we have seen times of repentance. We have seen times of, of reform. We have also seen times of heresy and apostasy and apathy. But through all of those things, God, Jesus is always the conquering king. 
And there's renewal that is happening in our world today, and it might be a small remnant of people. But my prayer is that God is pulling out his people and gathering them together as we speak, and that there is a work to unify the saints of God once again, because we are facing a terrible foe, a formidable foe, and may the Lord, as he's building his church, raise up his church today once again to be salt and light. And of course, if we're going to be salt and light, one of the doctrines that we need to um, understand and um, also need to affirm and accept and live in such a way is that Jesus Christ is the conquering king. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This is the risen Christ in all of his glory. And he's not being defeated. Not in one place. Throughout the book of Revelation is Jesus being defeated. It reveals that he's putting all of his enemies under his feet. And so I love this time of year for that proclamation that comes everywhere. You can turn on secular radio this time of year. And if you listen long enough, in a lot of these radio stations, you will most likely... Hear the gospel. You will most likely hear some affirmation of Jesus Christ as king. Now, obviously, the world's been lulled into a sleep and a stupor, and no one's hearing it because they aren't awake. But what is going to awaken people is for it to continually be proclaimed. And so you can hear it all over the place, even coming from every different denomination and church. And so it is a wonderful time of year because it is proclaiming this risen Christ who came in the form of man. And so, in our series, we have been looking at the power and authority vested in this risen Christ, who is not only the King of kings, but the Lord of lords. And of course, this uh, truth has major implications. And so, I want to mention them, even though I know it's uh, taking time to do so, but this is just so important that it needs to be reiterated before we move into chapter 2 and deal with the church of Ephesus that this, had, that this truth, that Jesus Christ is the first and the last, that he's the Alpha and the Omega, that he's the beginning and the end, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This truth has major implications and major implications that we are just not seeing. And it's mainly because we don't want to see it because of these implications, because they are earth-shattering, they are life-changing. First of all, there are implications for individuals, there's implications for families and churches, 
and civil governments. When it comes to individuals, recognizing Christ's authority is synonymous. It is synonymous with acknowledging his lordship over our individual lives. So to say that Christ has authority is to say that he should have authority over you. If all power and all authority has been given unto him in heaven and on earth, that means you. All power and all authority. This profound acknowledgement then necessitates the surrender of your personal will and my personal will to align ourselves completely and fully in body, soul, and spirit to his teachings and commands. Because either he has authority or he doesn't. He is either Lord of all or he isn't. He's either the king of kings or he isn't. And so it signifies that the notion of individual sovereignty is in direct opposition to Christ. So our desire to follow our own will or to enact our will is in direct opposition to Christ. That is what is anti-Christ. When we, when we proclaim or when we live by this motto, not your will but my will be done, or when we, like the rulers there of the Jews, said we will not have this man to reign over us, That's Antichrist. That's what it means to be Antichrist. Antichrist simply means to be opposed to Christ. And so, Christ is the sole sovereign authority. He is the only one who possesses organic authority, which means that the authority is completely, that it completely originates and is complete in him. Everything else is delegated. He alone has sole authority. Now think of the text in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which underscores this divine authority that is vested in Christ. It uses several terms like the only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. And Webster's 1828 dictionary defines potentate as a person of great power or sway, a prince, which may be how it is translated in many of your versions of the Bible. But it means a prince, a sovereign, an emperor, a king, or a monarch. This is why, and this is the transformative aspect of the gospel message, by the way, because... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that this is a, in Christ it is a new creation. It is a new creature that has been made. Those who are born again in him. A new creature. And a new creation where old things have passed away and all things become new. 
He is the sovereign over this recreation, this new creation. The building of his kingdom. And this is, and so what we understand is that he is the sovereign over it. He holds all authority and power and we are to submit to him. And the same is true like with the family, right? Think of the implications of the risen Christ who is elevated as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It establishes the foundation for a home that is centered on Christ, that is centered on Christian principles rooted in the acknowledgement of Christ's sovereignty and Christ's authority, his lordship. And so it is the family that is consciously turning to him as the ultimate authority And that part of the kingdom being built within that family, aligned with Christ as Lord, King, and Savior. And so we see that there's implications for the church. We are told that he is the head over all things to the church. He's the head of the church, the Savior of the body. And it's in the church that he is to have preeminence. And so there are implications, right? And the implications, of course, being that the Lord has, that Jesus has ultimate authority over his church. And so whatever he says should go. And the same is true about civil government. Implications that they rule by him. And all authorities are to be subject to him. And so that brings us here to chapter 2 in verse number 1, where we read, because as we journey into this story about the Ephesian church, here in the first century, we find this church in this city, a very lively city at that time. It was known for their admirable qualities and strong commitments. And yet, in the midst of this church that worked hard and was dedicated to understanding the right things, there was this subtle and dangerous problem that we are going to read about here in Ephesians, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 2. And notice what is said in verse number 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Referencing back to the end of chapter 1, right? So this is what the Son of Man Jesus, the one who holds it all and is in the midst of it all, says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, 
And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen, repent And do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, there's a lot going on here that is interesting. First of all, you notice that the Lord begins by declaring his authority, then he moves into some positive commendation, and then some correction and warning, and then some more positive commendation, and then that message is then communicated in such a way that it is for all the churches. So I want us to begin looking at this here this morning, and first of all, notice in the opening words to the church of in Ephesus that this Vision of John unveils a profound image of Christ, which sets the tone for what's to follow. Because it is not just now some communication to the church, but there's much more being stated. John is referring, or this this, the, the words of Jesus here that were given to John through this vision, this revelation of Jesus Christ, this unveiling of Jesus Christ, is now pointing them back to the things that were said in, the first, in, in chapter 1, declaring the power and authority and the might of this risen Christ. All the things that we have said about Jesus Christ being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All the things that we have said about his power and authority and dominion and might. He's reminding them, that is the one who is saying these things to you. So it sets the tone. And the powerful imagery has much significance. It's serving as a metaphor of the unparalleled authority of Jesus Christ over his church. He is the head of the church, and he is speaking to the church, and the church should be listening. I'm afraid we have been, we've had such a disservice to us when it comes to authority these days, because our culture and society is doing everything that it can to eradicate any kind of authority except for self-rule, which is actually mob rule. 
And so we don't really see the impact. When we say Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we just don't feel the brunt of that. We really don't understand it. It's like somebody speaking Greek to us because we have been raised up in secular democracy where the individual is king and the individual rules. But here we have Jesus Christ who is the sole authority and the ruler over his church, and when he speaks to the church, the church should listen. As a matter of fact, we should listen in fear. You see, he holds the seven stars. He is the vigilant guardian. He is the vigilant ruler and controller. He's the one who guides and directs. And he walks among the lampstands. He is present and giving oversight. And then we see that he is, that because of his sovereignty, he has the right to rule over his church and his people. So he alone has the authority to warn them, correct them, instruct them, and command them. And so that is what's being stated here. Listen, it's him who holds the seven stars in its right hand, and it is he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And then he says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So here we find much praise given by Jesus to this church at Ephesus. There are other churches we're going to look at that don't receive this amount of praise. And then there's one that doesn't receive any praise at all. But here, this church is act, actually has a lot going for it. And Jesus praises them for the many noteworthy qualities and the steadfast commitment that they have. You see, they're a church of diligence. Their tireless commitment to service and labor for the Lord. Their industrious spirit that's manifested in active participation and engagement in various works. And they are dedicated to advancing the kingdom through practical service. And we see their enduring patience, which, by the way, is a great virtue amidst trials. And they are commended for their patience, their endurance, to persevere because of their faith and trust and their hope. Their moral discernment, they're intolerant of evil. And they are commended for this. They cannot bear them, bear those who are evil. 
You see, they have moral discernment and they refuse to tolerate wickedness within their midst. They're committed to upholding righteousness and they demonstrate a desire for spiritual purity, reflecting the sanctification and the sanctifying work of Christ in his body. And then we see the discernment of false apostles. They're actively safeguarding its doctrinal integrity by discerning false apostles and knowing and identifying those who preach another gospel. And so in an age where deceptive teachings abound, their commitment to scrutinizing self-proclaimed apostles revealed a vigilant discernment, a discerning spirit. They were testing the spirits to see whether they were of God in order to protect the congregation from doctrinal distortions and falsehoods. They, were, they had unwavering commitment, endurance, and patience intertwined was how they are described. Not only were they steadfast in trials, but they also had an unwavering commitment to their faith. They were very resilient as they were rooted in the enduring grace of their Lord. They had a zeal without weariness. You just couldn't wear them out. You know, Paul talks about, hey, don't become weary in well-doing. That's not what you could say about the Ephesians here. Nope, they had zeal without weariness. Untiring devotion. And so... We see a lot of commendable virtues of the church there at Ephesus. As a matter of fact, many more virtues than can be described of us today. But in the midst of this, in the midst of a congregation that has diligence, patience, moral discernment, doctrinal purity, unwavering commitment, and and untiring zeal, And it's not just that they had this in the past. He's commending commending them for it in the present. So he's not just saying, yeah, one time you were this. That's what we say today, right? Well, one time. No, it wasn't what he was saying about them. He was saying that they presently, at the time in which this message was being delivered to them, that at that moment they were doing these things and that they could be defined By this description. But notice. In verse number four. After the Lord praises them. He says nevertheless. Oh my goodness. After you're hearing a bunch of praise. That's the word you don't want to hear. Oh you're doing such a good job. And man you know you've done this right and that right. However. Right. That's the word you don't want to hear. I mean, you're going through there and it's like, oh, yeah, 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 great, man, this is wonderful. And then the however comes, or the but. Nevertheless, I have this against you. And listen to those words. I have this against you. See, that's an authority figure. We can't bear that today, can we? Somebody has something against us. We're all offended. 
and it is, you know, some kind of postmodern meltdown that occurs following, but Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Whew. Well, we've pivoted here, right? I mean, we have went from all these wonderful things, and man, we read those praises, and it's like, boy, if we could just measure up to that, we'd be happy. But after he praises them, he pivots and points out in a very straightforward manner the correction that is needed and then gives them a warning. They had departed from their first love and they're being admonished for it. Christ issues a solemn rebuke to the Ephesian believers for their grievous shortfall. And we're probably thinking, well, it's not too bad. But it's a grievous shortcoming here. And it is the abandonment of their initial fervent love for Christ. And it's a matter of grave concern to Jesus. And then we see that there's this call to remembrance. He urges them to engage in deep introspection, self-examination. The call to remember, not just as some kind of an exercise to remember the past or remember the good things they had done in the past, but true spiritual reflection to visit the place from which they had fallen. Calling upon them to return to their initial love, which had now waned. It had grown cold. And then we see the imperative of repentance. A course of correction, repent, amend your ways. Turn from this and turn back to the former. You see, repentive stands not only as a corrective measure, but as a pathway of reconstruction, of restoration. And how are they going to be restored? By doing the first works, by rediscovering their foundations. He says, return to do the first works, the first works of love. The first works of love are not always theologically perfect. The practices of the first love are are not always complete. And there's a lot of and there's a lot of shortcomings, but the initial aspect of love is fervent. 
And there may be a lot of ignorance associated with it, but it is fervent. It's on fire. It's true. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. It's something that is inflamed. And he's calling them back to that fervency of their first love. And then notice his warning that he gives. It is a very serious warning over this aspect. So he's telling them, listen, if you don't return to that fervent love that you first had when you became Christians. Notice what he says he's going to do. Notice the severity of it. He says, I will remove your lampstand. In other words, I'll remove your place. You will no longer exist in this communion of churches. Now, it could be by a multitude of different ways, but the fact of the matter is is that they will be outside. He will not be the one holding them. He will not be the one in the midst of them. He will discard them. Just as Jesus said, when salt loses its savor, after, remember, he told his disciples that they were the salt of the earth, and he says if salt loses its savor, if it loses its flavor, if it loses its effectiveness, if it loses its purpose, it is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. I want to tell you, this is what's going on in the world today. If you really want to have a worldview to understand what is going on today, when we look at all the deconstruction, when we look at Christendom having been uh, destroyed through decay and erosion and also implosion, um, when we look at all these things that are going on, it, it, they are lampstands that are being removed. Jesus is purifying his church. So I ask, if Jesus is warning them about their lampstand being removed because of their lack of love, fervent love, but yet they were doing all these other things correctly, what do you think our state is before the Lord? You see, we look at it, we are so far removed from the aspect of true Christianity that we actually view this message here to the church of Ephesus as something light and minimal. Well, they were doing all these other things, right? So what? They just, so what? They weren't on fire anymore. So what that they had waned in their love? That's no big deal. Of course, there are further consequences that come down the line from that, but it's a big deal where it exists at that present state with the church of Ephesus, even though they're doing all these other things correctly. 
And notice there's this urgency of repentance. Jesus is telling them in urgent language. His warning is a looming threat over them. Unless you repent, I will come to you quickly. I'm not going to mess around, Jesus says. I'm not messing around. I'll come to you quickly, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Notice how he repeats that. Look at verse number five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a call to reflect upon these things. And it's also a call to repent and to rediscover the foundational elements of love that once illuminated the Ephesian church. They had lost their first love. They were no longer demonstrating, possessing this fire of love within them. And this resonates with us today, 2,000 years later. And, of course, we'll look at some other churches here that will resonate uh, much more closely. But beyond the commendations, there is this universal call here. Because notice, after he gives this message of warning to the Ephesians in verse number 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It wasn't just a message for the Ephesians, but it was a message that all the churches should hear. And it's a message that we, that this church and all the churches should hear. This warning about losing our first love, becoming a loveless church. A church without love. So it is a universal call to us even today to consider these things. The call to return to this foundational love. It is an ever-relevant exhortation urging churches of every age to rekindle the flames of passion for their Lord and in doing so partake in the eternal blessings of the paradise of God. To love the Lord This is the thing that Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. See, we need to have a rediscovery of love. Love is so sentimental today. It's all fluff. Words with no meaning. That's what Jesus is saying. If you love me, There's meaning to it. If you love me, keep my commandments. But in all of this conversation, what I want us to realize and focus upon here in this warning to the church of Ephesus about losing their first love 
is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because we look at the first part of that and we say the first part of that message to the Ephesians like, well, they were actually pretty good and this just seems like a minor thing in comparison to all the goodness and all the qualities that they had. But notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Isn't that where we are at? We can't speak to any issue today. And you know what the world hears right now? You know what our culture hears? You know what everyone around around us hears in the church, out of the church, all over the world? They hear sounding brass and clanging cymbals. Just, ah! Why? Because even if we speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, we become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith. Sounds like a pretty good place to stop, doesn't it? So that I could remove mountains. But have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And then he goes on to describe everything that love is. We'll talk more about that later time. But notice where he gets to in verse number 13. He says, now abides, now abide faith, hope, love. Three things listed there. Faith. Now he didn't say, he's, now what he's not saying here is to abandon faith and hope and that it doesn't exist and that it shouldn't be ever present no he says these things abide notice and now abide faith hope and love all these things are present and they should all three be present in us we should have faith we should have hope and we should have love paul is making a statement here of emphasis and he says and though and even though faith hope and love abides but out of these 3 the greatest of these 3 virtues amongst Christians the greatest virtue so when we think about the church at Ephesus they had lost the greatest virtue of Christianity. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And he's talking about the love that he described in this chapter earlier. Right? He was talking about the divine love. But he says, just like faith comes from above, we was talking about that in Sunday school. Love that comes from above, because God is love. Abides faith, divine faith. Hope, divine hope. Love, divine hope. 
But the greatest of these is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is the greatest of these three? Love. It was because of love that God sent his son into the world. And what are we told by Paul? That everything that we do is to be done in love in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 14. A love for Christ and a love for each other. It's the commands that are given over and over and over and over again. The Apostle John, his whole theological framework in his epistles is built upon love, the love of God. He talks about righteousness and sin and all that stuff, but it's all built upon the framework of the love of God. Let all that we do be done with love. We are told to speak the truth in love. We are told to be rooted and grounded in love. Why? Because love is the greatest of these three. Yes, you have to have faith. Divine faith. Yes, you have to have hope, divine hope. But yes, you have to have love, divine love. And that quality is the greatest virtue that we possess and that has been given to us. But yet we despise it and we actually abrogate it. And it is no wonder then That we're just clanging symbols to the world. We think we have the tongues of men and of angels. We think we have great faith, but the world just... Why? Jesus said, John 13, 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Why? Because the world will recognize it as divine love. Father, we pray that you would help us to consider the words that was written here to the church at Ephesus as they had declined from their first love, the love of Christ. And of course, When our love for Christ waxes cold, our love for each other becomes freezing. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in love. In the midst of all the truth that we are trying to proclaim and uphold, may you help us to speak truth in love. May you help us to walk in love. May you help us to love as you love. To love as you have loved us. Lord, we pray that you would restore our love for you. And our love for each other. And our love for the world. Make us a loving people. Rooted in Christ. And then may we go into all the world and tell them of this great love 
that you have bestowed upon us. In Christ's name, amen.